Yeah. It can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace, at least. In a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got a ghetto. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. And I just wanted to give a huge shout out to everybody who has been tuning in and listening to the podcast because our numbers have really been growing lately. And it's because of you uh, have, who have been out there sharing. And if you're new to the show, make sure you smash that subscribe button and listen to the future episodes because we've got some really important conversations like this one lined up. Uh, today on the pod, we have Paul Sharp. Paul Sharp is an ICU COVID provider here in in Utah, in the Salt Lake area. And he went to New York City uh, in March during the outbreak there and is seeing similar things happening here. This conversation is grim, it's sobering, and it brings humanity to the conversation of what's happening to our healthcare workers as they work their guts out to fight the COVID virus and to help save lives. You know, this is hard on them. One of the things that I really got out of this conversation is when Paul talks to us about how it's not that the healthcare workers are starting to become tired. They're just starting to become overwhelmed with patients. They've been tired since March. They're fighting a virus that they know very little about. They're starting to have more success with it, which is great. But they are doing things that they're unaccustomed to in an environment that they're unaccustomed to and in a way that is dehumanizing to many of these patients. And it goes against a lot of the things which they are trained to do, which is to, to care for and bring comfort to patients in a time when they're scared and when they're vulnerable. So this is a really important conversation. If you're listening to this right now, I really want you to share this with a friend because conversations like these, when we bring humanity to these healthcare workers, workers, it will allow us to hopefully change our actions. Here in Utah, we need to change our actions. The virus is out of control and it's really, really frustrating to see and know that people are gonna die because of the actions of, of those who just won't sacrifice. And that brings me to you know the part of the show where I tell you what I'm thinking about and what I'm learning about. And you know I've just been thinking a lot about the virus right now. And since the beginning of this, my wife and I happen to own uh, a gym that used to be called Roy CrossFit. It's now RC Fit, Roy Community Fitness. And since the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, we have really taken measures to try to make sure we do not contribute to the spread at our facility. And it's been hard. It's been hard on our community. We have done, we have not done a single get together or gathering. These are the sort of things that make our gym kind of special is this community gathering and this coming together. We haven't been able to do any of it. We've limited our class sizes. We've stopped uh, having the kids care. And so it means that uh, where we used to have two classes full of moms and full of kids, we now have no kids and we have two or three moms. And it's heartbreaking because I know how important that time was to them. And all along while we're doing this thing and it's been really hard on our business and it's been really hard on our community, but guess what? Those in our community, because we've been taking these steps, they take this more seriously. 
they know, they've been hearing it from me, they've been hearing it from Jesse, from the beginning that this is serious. From the beginning, when there was only a few cases, we said, this will be serious, you must take it serious, we must act now. And so those in our community do. I'm not here to say that we are immune to having an outbreak or something happen, but we're doing all that we can. We're trying our very hardest and we can, and it takes work. It takes effort. I continually have to tell and remind our athletes to stay six feet apart and to work really hard. Uh, we have to work in cold space because we leave the doors open. We let the airflow flow through and it's getting hard and it's getting harder, but we're committed to it. And meanwhile, I look next door at the gyms that are happening next door and I see their Instagram feeds and I see people getting together and I see group pictures and I see people bench pressing together and blowing air in the other person's face. And I know that they have contributed to community spread, not the good kind of like our podcast, but community spread of the virus. In matter of fact, my friend's coffee shop business got shut down because of a virus, that outbreak that happened at a local CrossFit gym. She got it from a CrossFit gym. She took it to the coffee shop. Their employees got it. They had to close their business for two weeks. Why? Because they care. And so they don't, they don't want to contribute to the spread. So they shut their business right down. This is the kind of collective action we have to take. We got to stop pretending like this does not exist. And you know what? That CrossFit gym that contributed to that spread, guess what? They probably won't feel the effects of it. Their members are relative, are probably pretty healthy. They probably all recovered from the virus and they probably don't aren't aware of the butterfly effect that happened from their spreading event. But guess what? You only have to infect 200 people before someone dies. They're contributing to the spread of the virus probably made it so somebody died and it made it so my friend's business shut down entirely for two weeks because they took the responsible actions. We've got to come together as a community and do what we can. We got to do it now. I hope this podcast brings to light the humanity of what our healthcare workers are going through. We can help them. We can't help them save lives in the facility or in the ICU, but we can prevent bodies from going there. We can prevent infection. We've got to stay home at Thanksgiving. You got to not get together with your families. I know it's hard. If you happen to do so, wear a mask, eat your dinner on a plate in a spread out room. I don't know. I don't know. Don't just know that this will come to an end. It will come to an end. There is a vaccine on the horizon. We've got to keep our heads down for several months here. This conversation really brought it home to me just how important this is and how we can help. So stay tuned and listen to this conversation and learn from the experiences of Paul and let's help him out. Let's help his friends out. Hey, Paul, I'm super excited to have you back on the podcast. Well, actually, you haven't been on the podcast before, but you were the first person I ever did this with, where we recorded a conversation and then we posted it to Facebook. So how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Yeah, doing good. You know, I was riding my bike one day and I was like, man, we got to do something about people taking COVID seriously. And I was like, I know my friend, Paul, he's on the front lines of this work. And so let's just record a conversation and get it out on Facebook. Uh, and now since then, we've kind of, it, from that and from some other conversations has built this, uh, the we've built Community Spread, the podcast. 
And so I wanted to have you back on to talk about that experience and to also compare your experience as you went to New York, caring for COVID patients and to what you're experiencing now as you're caring for COVID patients here in Utah. So first off, tell me what you do and um, how you're helping COVID patients. Well, I am a, a nurse practitioner. Uh, specifically, I'm an acute care nurse practitioner, which specifically talk, uh, takes care of patients that have acute mental in, um, acute medical problems. My role right now is that I do two days a week in an internal medicine primary care clinic, and then I do two days a week in uh, the respiratory ICU at Intermountain Medical Center. Yeah, I'm an old ICU nurse, um, and then and became a practitioner, and here I am. So all of us, regardless of kind of our specialty uh, these days, have been turned into COVID providers. <laughs> We've been forced into a new specialty. So uh, regardless what area, of what, what city are you in right now? I'm in Salt Lake. Salt Lake? Yeah. So Right at the heart of it yep. here, where the most, the most cases certainly are. In the beginning of the pandemic, obviously, there was a need for Mm -hmm. providers in New York, you decided to take that on and go to New York. Uh, Recap that experience for us and what that was like. Intermountain saw that there was a large need of um, essentially relief workers in uh, New York City. New York was getting pounded. They were kind of the first place in in the States that really had a large uptick in covid cases and they quickly overwhelmed their healthcare system in in New York City and Long Island and so Intermountain Healthcare decided that they needed to send people to help with that situation. I volunteered for that and was chosen to go out and I spent 2 weeks at uh, Long Island Jewish Medical Center working with critically ill COVID patients as a nurse practitioner just to kind of give a little bit of a background of what was going on at Long Island Jewish Hospital. It's a, it's a hospital that's not unlike Intermountain Medical Center in Murray, has a, roughly about the same amount of uh, beds, licensed beds as IMC. They have maybe 100 more beds, which is not really that many more. So their patient population normally is about 590 patients. When we got there, every single bed was full. In fact, they had doubled their patient load. So they were over 900 patients. They had shut down all elective surgeries. In fact, every single patient was being treated for COVID. So there were 900 patients in the hospital being treated for COVID. I think they said when we got there, it was something like 85% of the patients were COVID positive and 15% were rule out. And they had like a 100% positivity rate with the patients that were being admitted, which was kind of crazy. I was working in makeshift COVID ICUs. It was post-anesthesia unit uh, where people, Patients go to recover from surgery. They shut that down and just turned it into an ICU. So it was ward style, beds along the wall. Everybody was ventilated. Everybody was critically ill. And I spent time there. They had how many? So there. how many? You're, you're talking about a post-op room. I'm just trying to get a visual of this. What does that? What does that look like? How big is this room? And how many patients so, are lying on beds in these rooms? So in that room, it 
it's like a ward. So if you think of like old time hospital beds, right? Not the beds themselves, but just the way that they laid out hospital wards where it was just like a big room with beds along a wall and patients in those beds. It was similar to that. And that's how a post-anesthesia unit works. And the way that what happens is they come out of the OR, their anesthesia is reversed, they're recovered, and they usually spend just an hour there and then they go to their normal room. And they had shut that they had stopped doing surgeries. And so what they were actually doing here was just keeping patients in these beds long-term. So the idea- How, how like, many people are in that, are in one of those rooms? I guess I'm thinking of my post-op room. There's like 10 beds in there when I come out of an easy- Yeah, it was like a 32 bed uh, unit split to two sides. So it was like 16 beds per side and it was run as two different ICUs. So you had an A side and a B side and and I was on a, like, I think I was on the B side. So I had 16 patients that I was over uh, approximately, if I, if I can remember correctly. 16 was, patients that were kind of your responsibility? Yeah. So, and then what they had done is that they had taken every, every physician, whether they were a resident intern or an attending physician, regardless of their specialty, was now a COVID provider. And uh, this ICU had me and two resident physicians. So physicians that are still kind of in the in their uh, training as physicians. And we were responsible for these 16 patients. Now, these residents weren't internal medicine residents. They weren't critical care or intensivists or even pulmonologists. One was, I think he was an ear, nose, throat, resident and one was a radiologist you know so oh these guys are not and that's the way it was so, everywhere so you have by far the most intensive care the most training yeah. of either of these two other providers that yeah. you're working with even as a nurse practitioner not a physician like i was essentially teaching these physicians like ventilator management and critic and like hemodynamic management and, and those types of things while I was there. So kind of crazy that way. And everybody was just kind of recruited. It's like, you have a medical degree, you are now a COVID like doctor, <laughs> you know, total battlefield style stuff, you know? So I, I uh, was there for 10 total shifts I had multiple codes every single shift. At times I was running two codes at a time. I remember one specific event where it was like I was running two codes, two patients right next to each other, their heart And a code is a code is basically someone's dying. Yeah, someone's dying, their heart stopped, they stopped breathing. And we're trying to, we're doing compressions on them, which is very brutal in real life. Like our, the media and TV kind of make it look like it's this like pretty thing, but it's not, it's just hellacious. And I was doing, I was running two of those. So I was the person in charge and these doctors were so overwhelmed. One of them was just crying in the corner because she had been doing this for so long. And the other one was running another code. And so I was trying to take care of two patients at once and trying to, you know, give orders and keep things straight. You know, it was, that's just kind of the way that it was. For 10 shifts, I think I signed 16 death certificates while I was there. So I had multiple deaths per shift. And it when was, you're working, when you're working in an ICU, normally in your normal patient load, would, how many deaths would you see on 10 shifts in a normal non-COVID time? Zero to one. Man. Yeah. And and the thing that was the worst about this is we can't have anybody in there. We can't have their family in there. These people are dying alone or they're dying with people that they don't know. And that that's hard on the families. But I wasn't one of the families. I was a healthcare provider. And that's hard on us. 
we we gain a lot of closure as healthcare providers when someone dies, being able to have family members in there and being able to have our family, the family members of our patients just view how we're trying to save someone's life. That is protective for our own emotional well-being. And I'm not trying to minimize the effect that this had on families. I mean, this is like disastrous to them and a nightmare for sure. But, you know, it has an effect on us as well. And it just was, I don't think there was one shift that I left the hospital not in tears. (laughs) You know, just seeing that much death that often over and over and over, it just kind of wrecks you and wrecks your mental uh, health, really. And in a way that you're not used to. Um, like yeah, you said, sure. with the families not being there and and the suffering and the contemplation of all of that is just, it's, that's a lot to, to think about. And it's a lot yeah. on, on you. Uh, how many patients have you treated for COVID in Utah at that time? At that time, I hadn't been in the ICU treating COVID patients. I walked right into that. Um, before this, I was working as an internal medicine primary care provider. I had kind of gotten out of the ICU working in a clinic um, and I was just kind of thrust right back into it, which, I mean, I'm an old ICU nurse. Like I thrive on the adrenaline, uh, a hairy situation, you know, and uh, I like to kind of brag to myself that like you could have two legs in the coffin and I'll drag you out and send you home and you'll be fine. You know, this was altogether something different. You know, these, at that time, we just didn't know what we didn't know. And right now we know a little bit more, but we still don't know what we don't know. I mean, we're still learning. Tell me about that experience of treating something that you'd never seen before. You'd never learned about in school. You'd never practiced. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? I mean, we were just basically like throwing things at them. You know, like there was some data that showed, you know, that hydrochloroquine was a good drug for these patients and that, you know, these immunomodulators such as tocilizumab and stuff were, were good for patients. And, and uh, we were just kind of throwing those things at them. And then we were just treating them symptomatically, you know, like this is a patient that has acute respiratory distress. We're going to treat them like that. But it wasn't acting in a way that we normally expect acute respiratory distress to act. And so our ventilator settings are being maxed out and we're still not getting good oxygenation or ventilation on these patients. And the pressures that we're having to drive into these patients' lungs are like causing trauma to their lungs with the pressure that we had to get just to get air in their lungs. It's like walking into your worst nightmare and not knowing what to do yet. Like I often think about like when you have a nightmare when you're a kid, you know, you walk into school and you're naked and you didn't study for the test and you're like, oh, crap, you know, and then you wake up and you're like, oh, my heck, that was horrible. Oh, that was real life for us, you know, minus the fact that we weren't naked. Like we were just walking into like, we haven't studied for this. We have no idea what we're doing here. We're just trying to keep people alive and we're just not doing a good job about that. And that like we're educated to keep people alive. Like and if we're not. Like that, that, that hurts. You know what I mean? That just is like a twist in the heart. Yeah. I think that, wow, that's a way, really good way of putting it. We've all had one of those dreams, but with real life circumstances and people's lives on the line, uh, we can, I can only imagine what that was like. Yeah. So you, you make it through 
that experience. You come home to your family. You're you're, you're COVID free. You didn't you didn't yep. end up with COVID during that yeah. time. What was your PPE like, and how did that? How were you yeah, staying protected? So, so we uh, wore N95 face masks on top of the N95s and face shields and gowns and gloves for 12 to 16 hours a day with minimal breaks from our PPE. You know, we had really good access to PPE while we were there. Northwell Health, which runs Long Island Jewish, did an amazing job of taking care of us and keeping us safe. Are you used to working in that that much PPE? And what was that? What was that like? No, I mean, my experience as a, as a bedside nurse, I was a post-surgical ICU nurse. And so these people aren't infected with things. They've just been cut up. And so I'm not used to like wearing a mask and gown and face shields for long periods of time, but you quickly get used to it. And you quickly get used to the fact that like everything's hot. <laughs> Those masks are hot. You're just kind of like breathing in your own humidity and it's just uncomfortable. And so I have a real problem when someone says that they can't wear like a procedural mask or like a cloth mask out in the real world and say, oh, I can't breathe. It's like, no, no. Try doing compressions with an N95. You'll be so fine. That's a feeling yeah. of uncomfortableness, not... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a difference between being uncomfortable and like, I don't know, actually like not being able to breathe. And most people yeah. don't know the difference, you know, <laughs> and they like to make an excuse. It's like, come on, this is what we do. And, and it and it's fine. You know, we, we all survived and we all did fine. And, and I, yeah, I came home from uh, New York COVID free. Thankfully I had two COVID tests and an antibody test a couple of times just to make sure that I, you know, didn't contract it and then got better and didn't know it. And I've had several COVID tests since then and I haven't contracted it. And so I have a, a lot of faith in what we know about COVID and how to prevent getting it and things like that. And I continue to work with COVID patients in the ICU. And, you know, when I got home, Intermount was like, okay, you had this experience in New York and now go. <laughs> we want you to continue to work with COVID patients. And that's where I've been since. So, I mean, for a long time, Utah was relatively uh, unaffected uh, or less affected, I should say, uh, yeah. by, by COVID infections. As we've seen over the last month or two, it really, really grow. What has it been like being a provider for COVID patients as you've seen it grow during that time? You know, like we were talking before we kind of started recording this, like I'd like people to kind of understand that, you know, it's really, kind of, it's doing us as healthcare providers a little bit of a disfavor to say that we're starting to become stressed here in Utah. I mean, we've been stressed this whole time. Not to the effect or to the to the level of New York, thankfully, but we've been we've been stressed and it's just getting worse. And we have the stress of caring for these patients and then coming home to our families and still so, worrying. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second. So maybe I was really wrong in that. I mean, I kind of said like we have been minorly affected, but you're the one providing for those few that were yeah. affected even during the time when we were the media was kind of downplaying it all and like the things that things in Utah are super good, we're fine, everything's fine. During that time, you're treating patients all along the way, right? Yeah, yeah. I was in the ICU caring for critical COVID patients the whole time. I mean, I understand that our numbers weren't super high, but we still had a higher census in our ICUs than we normally do through the summer. Most of them were COVID patients. And it wasn't 
a normal time for those patients and it wasn't a normal time for their families and it wasn't a mild time for us as ICU providers, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, respiratory therapists, you know, techs. It was hard for us the whole time caring for these patients and continually trying to keep people alive uh, with a disease that we still know very little about. And we're learning every day how to care for these patients and we're getting better at it, but it's still hard. I like to tell people, you know, we've got decades worth of understanding of how to treat heart failure or I don't know, you know, pick uh, a disease that's pretty well known. We have 11 months of understanding on how to treat COVID. Like we just, we really don't know a lot about this right now. You know, thankfully there's a lot of good studies that are coming out really frequently about it and how to treat patients and we're getting better, but we're still not perfect. So what's the growth like for you as a practitioner, as we go from a couple hundred cases a day to a couple thousand cases a day, what does that look like around you and for the, the staff at the hospital and uh, the patients there? It's scary for us because traditionally in the winter, our ICU numbers go up. Flu every year hits patients that are immunocompromised and, and we, we, technic- we typically run about 90% full in our ICUs through the winter months. Well, now throw a global pandemic on that. So we're scared about how we're going to can to take care of these patients, and then we're also scared how are we going to. Just because there's COVID doesn't mean that we're the flu is not around. It doesn't mean that that COPD is not being exacerbated in patients, and it doesn't mean that patients aren't getting normally sick that normally would get sick anyway. You know, we have to give them care as well. We can't just say, "Oh, sorry, did you know there's a pandemic?" <laughs> yeah, so wait a minute, you know. Maybe in the summer we'll take care of you. Now they need care too. The way that this looks at Intermountain, anyway, is that we're we're repurposing uh, providers that work in nor- uh, you know in like primary care situations and other specialties and repurposing them like we did in New York. You know, you're now a COVID patient or a COVID provider. And LDS Hospital recently increased their ICU bed capacity so that they could accept more COVID patients, and we're. We have contingency plans at Intermountain Medical Center to shut down units and repurpose them as COVID ICUs like they did in New York. And we're trying to balance our COVID patients across the entire system so that uh, the tide of COVID rises evenly for all of everybody. And Intermountain Medical Center is super high, but Riverton Hospital is not, or McKD is not. You know, we're trying to- This was a problem they they had in New York. Uh, yeah, from what sure. I understand, is they had certain hospitals that were completely slammed, and others that they that they, that had some beds, but they could move them, or they built this big hospital with beds, but for some reason they couldn't transfer them over there. And so it sounds like yeah. Utah's learned something from that, or IHC has, and and they're yeah. working on balancing that. That's really important. We don't think about that kind of infrastructure. Yeah that it takes to deal with this many sick people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the way that we treat patients now is a little bit different. We're seeing better success rates. You know, when I was in New York, if you were sick enough that you needed a ventilator, 80% of the patients died that were on a ventilator. If you got so sick that your kidney shut down and you needed to be put on dialysis, 97% of those patients died. I mean, that's a 3% survival rate. That's, incre- that's incredibly horrible. And to have a 20% survival rate with a ventilator, I mean, come on. Yeah, I can even imagine you're in a room full of people on ventilators and, and you kind of know those odds. Like, that's tough yeah. work 
Tell me how that, how have, do we have statistics on how those odds have shifted? Just anecdotally, I don't have the exact numbers at the moment. And so don't quote me on, on this, but from right. what I'm seeing is that we're seeing about 80% survival rate of patients when they get put on a ventilator and we're seeing about wow. a 50% survival rate when they have to go on to continuous dialysis. That's just to be expected, right? That's like the scientific method, <laughs> you know, you learn you adapt, you change, you try something new. Oh, hey, that works. Let's keep doing that. You know, <clears throat> people think that science is like, oh, well, the textbook says this. No, 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 that's not science. <laughs> science is, oh, crap, we don't know. And right now we don't know a lot. And so we're trying different things and we're finding certain things work and certain things don't. And as we learn, we do different things and we're getting better success rates with that. But it's not I to mean, say- You say it's expected, but I say it's, it's miraculous and shows the- uh, you know, your, your guys' work and the ability to, to you know, I, I think a lot of doctoring is algorithmic in, in a lot of cases, but now mm -hmm. you guys are thinking on your feet and, and, and being, you know, innovative in, in treatments and care. Yeah. And that's a different kind of doctoring and shows the talent and the skill of uh, the providers like yourself and others around yeah. you. Yeah, you know, and just to kind of give credit where credit's due, every single day uh, we have Intermountain's infectious disease doctors on the phone with our intensive care physicians and nurse practitioners, and we go over every single patient that is COVID positive, and we talk about their care. What can we do differently? What can what is the data showing us? What new research is coming out? How can we adapt to what we're seeing? And we're individualizing care with every single patient. This is done on a daily basis. You mean um, you're yeah. not just like cruising Facebook to try to get tips? I, I mean, I wish. I mean, that would be so much. WebMD, I heard, is like super good, but it's just telling me everybody has cancer. And I don't think that's actually the case. No, but, you know, uh, our infectious disease team at Intermountain is just amazing. And, and so are all of our other providers. I mean, we're just... We're truly trying to do the best by people and doing the greatest amount of good for the most amount of people that we can. And this is a group effort. It's a team, you know, and it's coming down to the fact that like what we learned, what I learned in nursing school when I was a bedside nurse, like those things matter, you know, like making sure that we're doing oral care to our ventilated patients so that they don't get ventilator associated like infections, you know. That's huge. And uh, making sure that we're keeping them turned when they're on a ventilator so that they don't get bed sores, you know, those things are huge because those things come back to bite you. And that's why we don't want to become overwhelmed because those little things mm. have big impact. And we're starting to get to the point where we're becoming overwhelmed. And that's what's so scary about this. <sighs> Because in New York, we didn't have time to do the little things. And I think that had a lot to do with why we didn't see not everything. I mean, we still didn't understand how to treat the disease. But, you know, once you get so far behind the eight ball, like it's just impossible to catch up. And I hadn't thought a lot about that. You you're know, saying like the things that come back to bite you if you get, you know, because of the ventilator and you're not doing proper oral care, you get a secondary infection or you get a bed sore with a secondary infection. And that complicates right. the disease and leads you to leads you to go downhill. And if you get overwhelmed, those things start to catch up and get behind you and you can't do all the little things that uh, the, maybe all and, and a lot of all these little things are what adding up to your success rate. Yeah, for sure. You know, an ICU nurse generally takes care of one to two patients. They're responsible for one to two patients. Uh, in New York, ICU nurses were taking care of four, five, six patients at a time. How are you 
actively like trying to do oral care and turn them and to do all the little things when you have six patients, you just can't, you know, so you kind of have to make these decisions. What can I do and what I can't, what can't I do? And we haven't gotten to that point yet in Utah, but we're starting to, and that's scary. (laughs) You know, we can have all the data in the world as a provider, but if you can't give the basic care needs, like we're just, we're going to start to see people start to die again, I think. Oh, yeah. It's one of the things I wanted to ask you about was Utah's death rate uh, seems to be lower than uh, other areas around the country where last I checked, like about a half a percent of people yeah. that are getting diagnosed with COVID are, are dying from it. Uh, what are you contributing that to? Is it because we got it later? Is it be what, what, or what else could that be? I mean, it's because we, we learned from the mistakes in the big population centers of New York. It's uh, we have better logistical plans. We've had time to prepare these plans. It's uh, better, Uh, bedside care it's better understanding of what drugs actually work and which drugs don't it's kind of all of the above but you know what happens in like a disaster the little things start to overwhelm you and then we start to see this cascade effect you know and so thankfully we've been able to continue to do the little things and it's been hard work uh, for our providers and our nurses and our respiratory therapists, they've been working hard to stay up on the little things. Uh, and and we see the effect of that in our low death rate, which is amazing, miraculous. You miraculous. Know? But just the way that this is going to go is that we're seeing these high numbers and seven to 10 days later, they come to the, they come to the hospital and that a certain percentage of them. And then about five days, three to five days after that, a certain percentage of those people develop severe disease and they go to the ICU and then we start and as the numbers go up those percentages they still stay stay about the same you know it's like so many percent get to the hospital and so many of those become critical and so on but when you have 3,000 people that have been diagnosed with COVID that's more people like that percentage is still you know so many but that just equals more people that are and that's going to overwhelm our system yeah i mean at this point the math can kind of be done right like i mean like we had 2300 cases today and if the if it's a half a percent you know that's at least 11 people you know 10 11 somewhere in that range so 10 11 people got a death got a death sentence today you know 10 11 people got a death sentence today and that's you know the respiratory icu is like i think we have 18 beds in the respiratory icu you know and one day we could fill you know in two days we could fill that And, and every single icu is is full now we're creating new icus but i mean we're gonna fill those the number is just the math the arithmetic shows that we will fill those we're going to have to start doing disaster care, essentially, and it's coming soon. And, you know, back in June and July, August, September, I kept thinking, you know, this is coming. It's not, we're not there yet, but this is coming. And I was like, please, uh, you know, just praying. I hope we're, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, now we're getting these like numbers and I wasn't wrong. Unfortunate. I, I like being wrong because that means that, you know, because <laughs> I usually try to plan for the worst. And if I'm wrong, that's a good thing, right? Because you're a and, scientist. Because you're a scientist. Yeah. If you're wrong, you'll just learn from it and move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Um, tell me, you know, you talk about the staff and it being hard on you. What's it like in the break room, you know, as you guys shed the PPE for a minute and sit there and 
Like, what is it like? What are you guys experiencing together? You know, the the beautiful thing about the ICU and especially my time as a bedside nurse is that I knew that I could count on my brothers and sister nurses. You know what I mean? Like, I knew that they had my back and I knew, um, hey, if my patient codes, I'm going to get all of my coworkers and my colleagues in there to help me take care of this patient. And that's similar to what's going on now. Like, I trust these people with my with everything, you know. And as we kind of sit around and take breaks and stuff, it's it's just I haven't ever been in the military, but I kind of assume it would be similar to what, you know, soldiers feel when there's a break in battle, you know, just like a collective sigh of relief and then just a lot of camaraderie. And that's kind of how we kind of, that's how we kind of feel as well. These people become we become really close to each other, you know, and, yeah. and for me, it's a little different because I'm I'm not permanently in that role of a COVID provider you know i'm kind of redeployed and i'm doing this part-time just two days a week but you know even still like i've become really close to people that i didn't think i would ever become close to and um and i and i can you know i feel like i can trust these guys i mean it's it's amazing in in a good way yeah yeah and what's it like no families are allowed uh, still uh, in and around the hospital yeah. and the ICU. So what's it like interacting with the families? How do you tell them about updates of their patient's condition or their, their loved one's condition? And uh, how, how is that not doing that in person when you're used to doing that in person? Yeah. So um I'm just coming off of paternity leave and I've, so I've been away from everything for about three weeks and I've had this like wonderful break from like the reality of hell, you know? Congratulations, and, by the way, we were well, going to do this three yeah, weeks yeah. ago, but then you had a baby. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> but you know, uh, we've kind of, we've kind of figured out a way that if we can see things imminently starting to decline where we can get two or three family members into the hospital to be with their loved one, even just briefly, we put, we, we put them in PPE and let them spend 10 to 15 minutes in there. uh, And that's been really helpful for us. But to answer your question about how do we give patient family updates um, after rounds and after we kind of make a plan for the day, uh, the patients are divided up between the providers and then we take time and just give them a call. And they get a call. Family members get a call every day. And uh, we just let them know, look, this is kind of the changes that we're seeing. This is what we're doing to combat the problems that are starting to crop up. These are the, this is how things are getting better, or how they're getting worse and what our plan is to get things better, you know, to move them back on track and so on. And some of those conversations are really hard because we pride ourselves as healthcare providers with having answers, right? And it's so hard to tell a patient's family, I don't know, <laughs> you know, things are getting better and I don't know what to do. I'm trying, I'm trying this and I'm trying that. And I, and it's hard to say, you know, we're optimistic, but we just don't know. And that takes a toll on us. It's kind of taken um, confidence in ourselves and we've kind of been our confidence has kind of been tamped down or our uh, collective pride in our abilities has kind of been pushed down a little bit, if, if that makes sense. And it's hard on the families because they, they want to, they want to know and they want answers. And sometimes we're just not able to give that to them. 
but you know we try to keep the family members and the patients as connected as possible uh, we have a lot of ipads and tablets and stuff and they video call as much as possible so that they can see their family member and uh and that helps but the way that we would do this normally is that the family member would come in we'd sit down face to face and we'd have a conversation with someone and we forget that like having in-person face-to-face conversation is not like having a zoom meeting you know what i mean there's so much that's not communicated over a screen and i think that's that's hard that's hard on the family members that's hard on the patients that's hard on us as providers and healthcare workers and so you did say that you're having some of these some of the family members are able to come. You're getting a few in at a time. Are you? Uh, yeah, at least that's what is we that, Are you trying to do that for every patient? Or are you trying as, to? Well, as, as they start to acutely decline. And that's, mm-hmm. at least that's how we were doing things about three weeks ago. And I haven't seen or heard. Um, so you, these I've are like out. trying to get them in to say goodbye? Or like in yeah. Some... yeah, pretty much. And, and well, that's hard. And you, um, you talked about how that was helpful for you and, and, mm-hmm. and the providers and, and the staff. Yeah. Tell me how. There's something about humanity and just being a person and being a human and that human connection and understanding like a familial connection and to see someone pass away without their family is ultimately tragic. And then when we bring a family families in so that they're able to say goodbye to their family member, it's ultimately beautiful. Because like it or not, like all of our, we all know at some point you and I are going to die. You know what I mean? Nobody lives forever. This is a condition of mortality. You know what I mean? We're all, we're all here. We're all going to die. This is going to happen for everyone. Right. And the most beautiful way to die is at home surrounded by your loved ones. Right because that's life. You know what I mean? The most horrible way to die, in my opinion, right now is to die in an ICU without your family members with people that you don't know, and scared, you know? And it's horrific. And I think, I oftentimes think about the way that we use words, right? I think we don't put a lot of um, weight in the words that we use sometimes. But to think about the word horrific, like it is literally a horror to die alone and scared. And it's hard to watch someone die that way. And we become desensitized with like media and stuff like that and the way and TV shows. But to see that in in real time and to see that for real, like that affects you. That affects your humanity, you know? in nursing school, we talked about like the nurse's role and the, the role of a nurse is really to assist a patient to the highest level of functioning possible or assist them in a peaceful death. And it's really hard to assist someone to a peaceful death in an ICU when they're scared and they don't know what's going on and they don't have their family around them. Well, that definitely answered the question. I could see why that moment of having uh, a family member come in 
particularly when you've had so many of these moments of them dying alone would bring peace uh, to you, you know? What can Utahns do right now to make your, your experience better, to help our fellow citizens, to help these people uh, that, are, that are in the ICU, to help people that are dying from this? You know, our studies are showing that masks help and that it limits the spread of COVID. And this has been such a divisive year politically and everything else. I mean, pick a topic and it's, we're so divided. And I think that's, that's sad. And it makes me sad when people take masks and turn that into a political statement. They're uncomfortable. They're not fun to wear. I get it. But a seatbelt is uncomfortable and it's not fun to wear but I'm sure thankful I have it when I get in a car crash. You know what I mean? And so this is not about limiting someone's rights. This is about just caring for humanity and caring for each other and having respect for each other, regardless of what you may or may not believe. On top of that, we're seeing that the transmission right now is happening between small social groups and family units, which is really hard. Which means, you know, your Sunday dinner with mom and dad or your family party or the birthday party with your close friends. That's how COVID's being spread right now. It's not when you're going out to the store. Everybody wears a mask right now when they go to the store. But when you go to, you know, your in-laws house you take off your mask and then all of a sudden you don't know that you're sick and now grandma and grandpa have COVID. so you know i would just say now is not the time to make this a political statement because it's not we've had long conversations about our political ideals and we don't we don't agree you know you and i and that's fine <laughs> i think it's a beautiful thing i, I think too. it's a beautiful thing but, you know, there's one thing that I can agree on is that I love people. And because of my love for people, I try to stay away from them as hard as it is. And I try to wear a mask and I try to, you know, practice good hand hygiene. And I try to do the things that I know I can do to help save people on a large scale. And so that's what I would say. You know, this is let's let's come together like we did, you know, with other times in great times in humanity, you know, uh, like with the world wars and, you know, like everybody came together and did what they needed to do for the war effort. You know, let's have another one of those. Let's be the next greatest generation. But right now we're just like the little stepchild that, or, you know, the little spoiled brat, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, I think the mask is, is like you said, it's, it's really important, but the hard work is not going to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Uh, the hard work is not, you know, not seeing, seeing mom and dad and, yeah. you know, and, and getting together with brothers and sisters, you know, and just all those things that are, are really important for us 
socially, but this, we will get through this, you know, and there will be a time like we, we will get back to that. And, and we have to continue to keep our heads down. And I think not just thinking about it in terms of masks, but really admitting and talking to people, this is hard. We, but we can do it. And the real life consequences are all of those things that you just talked to us about. You know, I think the about, horror, the horror that you just described and you yeah. just laid out for us yeah. is the reason you shouldn't go to get, get together with your family members right now. And if we can yeah. picture that and we can see that, I think it will you know, we'll be able to get through this and we'll be able to get on the other side and, and, and live normal lives again at, at some point. It will happen. Yeah, it'll happen. I mean, we had uh, the, the Spanish flu of 1918. You know, we got through that. Lots of people died. You know, um, humanity has been through horrible times and we've made it through. We're going to get through this again. That's one of the great things about being human is that we're damn smart. You know, we'll figure this out. And, um, you know, I kind of think back to, uh, you know, those World War II posters in England, you know, keep calm and carry on, you know, let's keep calm, let's carry on. And yeah, it'll get better. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I saw that news about uh, the from Pfizer that they, they say they claim that their their vaccine is 90% effective. I think that's way above and beyond. What what are your thoughts on that? Do you, I mean, uh, do you believe that that statistic? I'll believe, and- uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, I'll believe it when I read the peer-reviewed journal, you know, and know I see their, their study data. <laughs> we know we know their stock prices went through the roof after they announced that. So that's the thing. Like that's the thing that's so amazing. Like assign some money to this and we'll do amazing things, you know, like capitalism will triumph. <laughs> Innovation will happen. Um, but yeah, I, I'll believe it when I see it. And, you know, I think that if by, if by capitalism, you mean socialism, because the government's going to give the money. So <laughs> then, then it will actually triumph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're, I mean, they're being, they're being motivated. They have lots of different motiv- motivators, you know. <laughs> Someone's going to get had, rich off this. We had to get we had to get that in there. Um, <laughs> but you know, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I, really I am hope, hopeful. I'm sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, I I really hope that it's as good as they claim. I really do. That would just that nothing would make me more happy, you know. Uh, but you know, the skeptic in me says, "I'll believe it when I read the peer-reviewed journal and see the study data." And, uh, um, and we'll see, you know, there's, there's a race between several different, uh, pharmaceutical companies. They've got a lot of smart people working on this. And I think that, I think we'll, we'll come out on top with a vaccine uh, and, and we'll see where we're at. So I'm going to admit something that I don't tell a lot of people and I'm just going to tell it okay. to the podcast, but you know, I'm a chiropractor. We come from a long line of crazy vaccine skeptics. Um, yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting over that as I get, as I get older, uh, I've become a disindoctrinated, thank goodness. But I, I, I will tell, you know, the bad rhetoric I've used in the past is that I have said, I've taken a selfish stance. Uh, and I've said, you know, I, I believe, I know vaccines work. I've always said that. 
uh, I, but I've said, I've taken a selfish stance and said, what is sometimes uh, good for the forest is not always good for the tree. Um, I don't, yeah. I think that's selfish. I don't I agree with that stance. I think we have to take a more collective look at an approach at this. Uh, but if you even, if you are thinking out there right now, if someone out there listening is thinking that that is that that's their thought process, the forest is on fire. And the way to put out the fire is to get the vaccine. So I will be the first in line. Uh, I will let them stick it in my arm. And I will tell my friends to do the same. Because if we want this yeah. thing to end, and if we want Paul, Paul's life to turn back to normal, uh, get it, letting, you know, having family members with him and his patients and not going through horror, then that is uh, what, that is what we must do. And so yeah. that was, that's the end of my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate you. Like, you know, I think that um, I tell all of my patients, especially my primary care, like now is not the time to like skip out on the flu vaccine. I'm just going to like get on my soapbox mm -hmm. this year, more than ever, get your damn flu shot. You know, uh, we don't know what it looks like to have flu and COVID concurrently. Um and let's just see what the data shows when the studies are published and peer reviewed when these uh, vaccines come out and let's hope for the best. And, you know, I think it's miraculous that we're even to the point where we're in stage three trials, you know, that's amazing. That's a miracle in and of itself. You know, there's other diseases that we've been trying to develop vaccines for that we haven't gotten that far and it's been decades. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful for the future. I'm optimistic. I'm an optimist, you know, and I think that uh, we got to just keep our heads down, do what's right for each other, love each other, because what else is there and um, and move forward. I love that, Paul. We're going to end on that note. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been my pleasure, man. Yeah. And that's it for the show today. I want to thank you for tuning in to that really important conversation. And again, please make a special effort this week to share this podcast. I think we can save a life collectively by limiting the spread of COVID-19. I want to thank Decker Yazi for our artwork and August the Great for our theme music. As always, go check those guys out. They do awesome work. Thanks, everybody. Supplying the people crack for chip. Brainwashing the folks, every single cat's asleep. Though that Jim Crow side of fair trap in a mind state. And it seemed like we had a peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing. And we down on the daily, some kill for the dime's sake. I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life. See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig. We don't get the graduate. We got trade up to the league with no second plan Hoping we got it made into a big We need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that If you feel this in your heart, then I'm probably kicking the fat touche And it's hard throwing power and shout here Everybody's dead broke and impoverished, shout swear I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches 
They rather get some brain. The law that brought knowledge can't pay back selling me, and we can't afford college. Around here, the stake is always high, so they bang. Screw me, fuck the law. They rather leave and die for their gangs. They got nothing to lose, but they sick with hate. Mad at the world, we got a bone to pick with fate. So white privilege for the kids to the slave master. We were left for dead design to hit the great faster. It's a setup, and we ain't meant to survive. Look how far we don't came. We made it to this land of surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a bride. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. That's real. American said we gotta get up. Volume one. Yeah.